In the Trauma-Informed Education podcast, you can get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to our Trauma-Informed PBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. That's tipbs.com. advocating for trauma-informed practices, we may find ourselves isolated in schools that are stressed, under-resourced and punitive. Well-intentioned educators, under the pressure of standardised curriculum and unrealistic expectations, become dispirited and burnt out. In these systems, compassionate and thoughtful strategies to help students is met with strong opposition and cynicism. So what can be done to change such schools? Hello, I'm Dr Kay Eyre, and this is Trauma-Informed Education. In this episode, we speak with psychiatrist Dr Sandra Bloom. In addition to her faculty position at the School of Public Health at Drexel, she is president of Community Works, an organisational consulting firm committed to the development of non-violent environments. Dr Bloom is director of the Sanctuary Programs, inpatient psychiatric programs for the treatment of trauma-related emotional disorders. Dr. Bloom is author of a series of books on trauma-informed care. Her first book, Creating Sanctuary Toward the Evolution of Sane Societies, now in its second edition, tells the story of the journey she and her colleagues began in the 1980s in understanding the connections between a wide variety of emotional disturbances and the legacy of child abuse and other forms of traumatic exposure. Staff in over 350 programs have been trained in Dr. Bloom's sanctuary model, which is now being used in a variety of settings, including several schools. Dr. Bloom will be interviewed by myself and my colleague, Dr. Gavin Krishnamurthy. I hope you find this interview useful. Hi everyone and welcome to Trauma-Informed Education. My name is Dr. Kevin Krishnamurthy and I'm here as always with Dr. K. Hi Kay. Oh goodness, I can't hear you. That's because I was on mute. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to see you. We haven't done a lot of these this year so we've had some emails come in asking for it but I think we won't disappoint um, today because it's definitely a highlight. We've got Dr. Sandra Bloom with us. Sandy, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Um, we're very excited to have you here. Uh, got so many things to ask you. Um, we're great fans of your work. Um, so we start all our kind of interviews um, by asking people about their experience of school, um, where they went to elementary school and high school. Um, could you tell us about that, Sandy, and how it's kind of influenced the work you do? Sure. I went to um, all the way through school at the same um, school district, and it was called Lower Moreland, and it's in a, a, a suburb of Philadelphia, but it was really like growing up in a small town in a small school, and I think as I thought about that question for you, I thought about how much it had influenced everything about my subsequent work, because it was a very natural democratic environment where teachers were interested in the kids. Um, the, the kids all came from middle-class families pretty much in brand new suburbs post-World War II. And um, the, the kind of social norm was that you helped other people uh, in the whole community and certainly in the school. And uh, it was small enough that, I mean, there were a hundred kids in my graduating class. So it was small enough that everybody knew everybody else. And if a problem arose, it could be spotted and addressed. And there weren't that many problems in those days. You know, there was a good economic situation for families. People had jobs. And I 
was completely unaware of any violence. I, it, it, I did not learn about violence until I got out into the world. So I think that was a real blessing uh, that I didn't really think about until I started to see the enormous contrast for other people growing up. And I've thought about the smallest of the schools. You know, we sociologists have come up with this number that's called Dunbar's number that says that human beings and our systems deteriorate after about 160 to 170 people. And when I've thought since then about all of the problems in the educational system, I've thought, well, you know, we could probably solve all of them by just stopping um, trying to save money by getting bigger and bigger schools and instead go back to small schools with that could really be communities that children can learn how to be citizens within. Mm -hmm. So that's actually what I experienced. And I think it's pretty interesting given, I don't know if well, that's what's happening in Australia, but we now have these huge combined schools with thousands of kids and wonder why um, the educational system is so compromised. Yeah, that's such a great point. I think that's the case here with a lot of our high schools. They're, they're quite large, I think. And, and if relationships are going to be quite central in the educational process, that's quite hard to do with so many children, I suppose. Exactly. exactly. Uh, Some of our um, primary schools, Govinda, our new primary schools around here, um, hmm. in, in, you know, rapidly growing um, suburban areas. We've got a, a primary school here that has been opened now going into its sixth year. It has seven classes of every year level in a primary mm. school. Seven classes of preppies, seven classes of year ones, right up to year six, and they're getting up to 1,500 children. Oh. And they're physically running out of space to play. Right, you exactly. Know, um, because the buildings need to go on the grass <laughs> because right. there's nowhere else to put the buildings. But how do you be belong as one little five-year-old with 1,500 children, you know? Exactly. Pretty yes. tough, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of large organisations, uh, Sandy, how do you explain what trauma is? I'd be fascinated to hear how you uh, think about it and what impact do you think it has on organisations and systems like schools? I think, yeah, it's, it's a, a bit of a hard thing to define because of it used to be when this field first started that it was pretty clear. There were things, trauma meant things that were, uh, uh, that people had experienced a real threat to their life um, or witnessed death and dying and horrible things. And that, that remains one of the definitions. But because we don't have a word in English that actually embraces what we're talking about relevant particularly to children, we use the word trauma as kind of a shorthand to also represent chronic stress, toxic stress, uh, relentless stress, and traumatic stress. So, so with that caveat, um, I define trauma really as when the brain and body are overwhelmed, our physiology is overwhelmed by an experience that then causes suffering. And, uh, in response to suffering, people often get derailed. Their development gets derailed. The way they cope um, derails them further or try to cope derails them further. And we end up with very complex problems as a result, not necessarily directly of the trauma itself, but of the adaptations then that children and adults make to try to deal with their disordered physiology and brain regulation, really. Mm -hmm. Yes. And how do you see that playing out in systems? And in I suppose, systems, right. um, uh, because it not only is it affecting the children, the people around the children are just as human as they are and just as uh, vulnerable. Well, we know um, from sufficient, the adverse childhood experiences study and all of the follow-up research that's been done that 
the majority of the American population are going to experience a traumatic event in their lifetime, mm -hmm. that the majority of the American population are going to have been exposed to at least one adverse childhood category of experiences. And a substantial minority are going to have been exposed to four or more. So we, we have to address this and it's, mm -hmm. it's beginning as a, as a public health emergency, not that, not that there's some specialized group of people that you can, uh, just pay attention to them and then everything will be fine. This, this, it, these issues, and then there's the multi-generational impact because it's not like uh, human evolution has been an easy road. So um, we have to really understand and spread knowledge about what we've learned at a very basic level so that everybody gets what this issue is about because you can't walk into an environment where everybody is just perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Staff, administrators, teachers, children, their family members, we have to really deal with that. That's what I mean by a public health approach. That we have to, we have to, like, a public health approach is like we put, we've uh, made laws to make sure there are seat belts in every car. Will everybody have a car accident? Thankfully, no. But will enough people be in danger at high risk of having a car accident? Yes. So everybody has to wear seatbelts. Um, washing your hands after going to the bathroom, right? That's a, that is a universal precautions public health measure. We need those kind of measures in place around the issue of trauma and adversity for the same reasons that everybody's at risk because our emotions are contagious. And so even if you've had a perfect childhood, you're going to be interacting with people who have it. Mm -hmm. And you're going to catch a lot of their distress. And you may develop some coping skills uh, as a teacher or an administrator or just a parent that um, are not good coping skills for you because you've been impacted by the other people. So that that's what makes it so critical for organizations and for whole systems. We can't, we can't any longer pretend that this stuff isn't real. It's very real. And if you work in anybody that works in any kind of workplace knows stress kills. It really, it affects us and not just our own, but other people's stress as well. Yeah. Um, I have many questions about that, but, but I wanted to ask you about the sanctuary model. Um, and if you could just describe it to us just briefly, and, um, and there's been some applications of it in schools as well. So I wondered if you could speak to that, Sandy. It is a, an organizational approach that evolved from my original work running a psychiatric inpatient unit for originally for adults and adolescents uh, for 30 years. And it, it's really, we learned uh, from our patients really what it meant to treat people who experience trauma. And not just treat them, but what kind of environment did you need to contain all of the distressing emotions uh, and the dysregulation related to a past history of trauma and adversity. So we learned, you know, upfront, close and personal. And then we elaborated that into a conceptual framework that could be taught to other people. And it, it's, it's centered on a set of values that we found were really critical um, to create a milieu that kept people safe. Um, and then we use a whole bunch of different tools to help people in a day-to-day -day level um, cope with the distressing emotions that uh, they're subject to. So um, in schools, Schools are natural environments uh, to have trauma-informed um, educational systems because they are communities. Every mm -hmm. school is a community. Every school has a climate. Every classroom has a climate. And there, there's been a, just a wealth of research 
about the importance of school climate for learning and for classroom management. So sanctuary is really uh, an, a newer articulation of long-standing ideas that have long been in um, the healthcare and the educational environments, but that keep getting lost. So uh, the integrate, the only thing new about it is the integration of this knowledge that we have now about the way trauma and adversity affects the brain and the body. But otherwise, these are ideas that have been around a long time and really go back to if um, your listeners are educators, so they might not know much about the literature on the old 18th century moral treatment in psychiatric settings, but it goes back hundreds and hundreds Mm. of years and we have Mm. to keep, we keep forgetting and we have to rediscover it. So um, that's what makes it so I think important and useful for schools. You don't, you don't have to think about this as something, Oh, brand new flavor of the month. It's actually really well grounded in longstanding educational principles of how children have to be treated in order to encourage learning. It's, it's as simple as stressed kids can't take in new information, neither can stressed adults. Mm-hmm. And it means then that administrators have to really take care of the staff so that the staff can actually educate the kids. If there's a lot of conflict among the staff or between the staff and administration, then the, the teachers will be too stressed to really pay attention to what the stressed children really need to be able to calm down and be able to learn things. Mm-hmm. So this is all part of what we mean by trauma-informed education. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that, Sandia, but this idea that we need to rediscover these values. And I think, uh, you know, we've spoken in other podcasts about, you know, going back to your why, you know, going back to why it is that you do the work. What are your thoughts about that? You know, we've often been in roles where we're advocating for students, speaking to people who've been in the field for a very long time, very well-meaning people who often make decisions that, you know, and you know at some level isn't necessarily in line with their values. And, uh, you know, I'm not being righteous here. I think sometimes we might be in danger of doing that as well. What are your thoughts about that? Why is it that we we're away from those values? Does it have something to do with the experience of stress or our outlook on the work we do from my experience of that? Yeah, I can, I can more easily address that from an American perspective than I can from an Australian, because I don't, I don't know that you guys are as afflicted as we are, but I think the, uh, you, you know, you have to go from individual all the way up to big picture. So I'll start with big picture. And I think that our educational system has been afflicted by our, um, unidimensional emphasis emphasis on money being the only value. So Mm -hmm. if money and financial success is the only value, then it trumps, no pun intended, everything Mm -hmm. else. And uh, that's what we've got here. So everything is sacrificed to the God of money. And that then has a corrupting influence on everybody. Even the most well-meaning people have to still try to get in alignment with what their next up in the hierarchy person says about the factor that trumps everything else, Mm -hmm. which is, yeah, that's all good. That's well-meaning. Yeah. Be nice if we could do that, but we can't afford it Mm -hmm. Um, is basically what it comes down to. And I think then, it becomes very difficult for people who have a clear moral compass to challenge that moral infringement Mm. uh, because they're feeling extraordinary levels of moral distress. And if that is so distressing that you shut it down Mm. and, and you get, you get these kind of two, two selves, one of which is responding to the power needs of those who are in control of the purse strings and the other, which is more deeply you, which says, I know this is wrong, but I'm too scared. I'm too intimidated. I'm too threatened to be able to do anything about it. And I think that's why 
articulating a value system all the time becomes so critically important that that should be the primary, a primary role of leadership is that leaders should be articulating the values and walking the talk. Mm -hmm. So what all too often happens is that the values system gets put on the board. It gets on some kind of poster that's put in the boardroom and that's the last anybody really talks about it. And yet every single decision that's made, the test of whether it's a good decision should be, does this support or undermine the values that we say we believe in? And so that that has to be a thoroughgoing analysis to begin with, and then a practice about you know are we are we doing fulfilling our mission? If our purpose is to educate needy children who need to to learn things, and we live in a society that is increasingly inequitable, what are we as the adults going to do about that? How are we going to speak truth to power? How are we going to resist um, without, um, without becoming annihilated, basically? Because it's really about money and it's about power. It all comes down to that. You know, it, somebody, uh, one of our political commentators, I think during one of our early administration, basically responded to a question. He said, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> and that's that's really what this comes down that we are we are in a moral crisis it's the same mm. with uh, climate change mm. you know we're destroying the earth that is our only home mm. because we don't want to pay mm. to fix it if we could have at some point in time so mm. uh, you know that's big picture all the way down to the individual what does the individual do well individuals alone are very vulnerable and that means that we have to figure out how to work better collectively together. And, and in my very individualistic culture, that's a, that's a tough sell. But mm -hmm. there's no hope unless we move in that direction. And yeah. schools are collective bodies. Um, schools can mobilize power within their community as long as they speak with one voice. Yeah, that's, I found that really inspirational. Thank you. Um, speaking of being true to ourselves, um, you, you have a very nice framework in the program, the SELF framework, um, and how you can use that to um, help children with their recovery. Could you speak to that, Sandy, a little bit about what that? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, self emerged from our original very traumatized adults as a framework for organizing thing. And what it does is it organizes chaos. So self stands for safety, emotions, loss, and future. And we think of it as a compass. So with the four compass points and a normal compass, that's what um, self is. So that you, you continually move it around based on what, what the situation is you're, you're dealing with. But, Everybody's has the experience. A teacher is um, in front of her is a child who is in distress, who is chaotic and profoundly dysregulated. Where do you even start? Um, you're supposed to be educating this kid and this child is way too hyper aroused to be able to teach them anything. And they're disrupt disrupting everybody else in the classroom. So what do you, how do you even begin to think about it? And that's where self comes in. So you think about, and you work with the child around what identifying what the safety issues are. And when we talk about safety, we mean four domains of safety, physical safety, um, obviously, psychological safety, which is being safe with yourself, social safety, which is being safe with other people, and moral safety, which is being safe within a system of values that are dear to you. So you help a child think through all of their problems as safety issues, not as their, this, this underneath the self framework is a basic shift in mental models. So what self-informs is saying, this child in front of me isn't, 
it isn't a matter of whether they're sick or whether they're bad. It's that this is an injured child. And to think about injury, we need a framework within which to think about it. So the first thing is, how do, how do I help you get safe in the world? You need to take responsibility and I'll help you as much as I can. But when we talk about safety, you need to be phys physically more safe. So we have to help you develop abilities to calm yourself down. You have to be safe with yourself, which means you have to make the connection that what you're doing is really hurtful to you and your own self-esteem. You have to be safer with other kids. So you need to understand that when you get really upset, other kids catch it and they, then the whole classroom gets out of control. And that's not safe for me as your teacher. And then what do you really believe in? What's your purpose? Do you want to get in it? You know, whatever, depending on the level of the child. <clears throat> Emotions are about, we know that stressed people can't manage their emotions very well. And emotions are critical for education. So emotions direct our attention to what's important. And a child who is dealing with violence cannot direct their attention to reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's impossible. Their brain doesn't work that way. It's, a, it's part of our evolutionary heritage as humans. So it becomes critical for teachers to develop skills to help children calm down and for children to become emotionally intelligent about their own self-regulation and be able to help each other in the classroom regulate their emotions. But to do that, you kind of have to know what emotions do I have the most problems with? So to help a child recognize that, well, I'm okay until I pick up Johnny's anger and then I get really scared. And when I'm afraid, I can't think. Okay, great. That's part of the, that would be the conversation that the teacher could have. Okay, what can you do? What can we help you figure out to do when you're, when you get afraid so that you can be less afraid? The loss is the L is about all change involves loss. So we don't think about that a lot because we don't like loss, but people, humans don't resist change. We resist loss. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if you honor a child's loss, if you help a child to see that if you make a change, it means you are going to have to give up something. So if um, you're going to use exercise to help yourself calm down, it means it's going to take time. So you're going to have to give up time doing your video games. Are you willing to make that commitment so that you can improve your management skills? Just off my head example, yeah. right? Yeah. All change requires loss for kids and adults. And then why should we then, why should we change? Well, because we envision a future, and that's where the F comes in, because we want something, and we're going to have to give up something before we get that. So we have to have a clear vision of what we want to get to. So when you're challenging a child to make a change and manage their emotions in order to get safe, no normal human being would do that unless they had a vision of why. Mm -hmm. What would that feel like? What will it feel like for you, Johnny, not to have me scold you all the time? What would it feel like? For you to be, can you imagine that you take a math test and you get an A plus? Can you imagine that happening? Even though you failed every single math test this semester, right? Um, so you, you want to make, you may start, a teacher using self might actually start with that. It's mm -hmm. a circle, so you can start anywhere. Um, it might start with, and often do, what are we trying to get to? I need to talk with you, Johnny, because the, this is what I see happening and I'm worried about you. But let's start with every, everything works. Everything you and I are going to plan, it works and you are successful. What does that look like to you? Give me an example of something you've been successful at. And you, 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 get, you get in imagination the future piece and then you back into 
the other pieces. But what that does between the, the student and the teacher, it organizes the chaos, but you don't miss anything. You don't miss any of the critical components. Frequently what we miss is loss. We don't calculate what the person will have to give up. And that's critically important with traumatized people because what's at stake for them is that if they stop doing the habits, if they can, if they can stop doing the habits that they've used in order to cope, we need to understand that what they're trying to cope with is unimaginably terrible feelings. And if we are think if we think that they can just easily stop that, they can't without exposing themselves to those terrible feelings. So we have to have empathy for what their internal life is really like in order to really help them figure out what to do to make it better in order that they can learn. Yeah. So that's what self is for. It's very powerful, really simple tool and yet really complex at the same time. Absolutely. I had one thought just as you were talking about loss and um, this idea that people, particularly who are traumatized, are worried about losing their coping strategies. I was thinking about kids, you know, really escalating and misbehaving as perhaps representing a protest against losing some of those things and not being able to go up. Absolutely. I mean, we, we we learned this from um, our patients, many of whom were self-mutilating. And, you know, we try all kinds of punitive strategies to get them to stop mutilating. And of course, it was a complete failure until we understood that the cutting was the way they were coping Mm. with feelings that were worse. Mm. And that we couldn't expect them to give up a coping skill that was effective unless we could replace it with something else. And that wasn't so easy. Mm. So um, that's how we learn to, to approach these kinds of problems entirely differently. And that's out of that came our, um, what's become really a national meme, which is Oprah talked about this last year on a, on a TV program. She said this revolutionary approach. It's not what's wrong with you. We've stopped asking that question. And we, now we ask the question, what happened? And, and it was actually my friend, Joe Fotorero, a social worker in 1991, who said that in the team meeting. Um, and that's, that's really what it's all about is that, when you see that problem behavior, you kind of start, have to start with, hmm, I wonder what that's about. Why would somebody react that way? What happened that could produce that outcome? And that's where you begin the question of, hmm, how can we figure out how to redirect that behavior into more positive and self-affirming and creative and educational uh, channels? But w- unless you unless you get that original shift, you don't get anywhere. You just end up trying to punish people who are already profoundly punished for just being alive. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think some people learn it the hard way, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, I-, I love all your examples, Sandy. They're so illustrative. I-, I was wondering if you could tell us like a little anecdote or story of how, uh, you know, be the sanctuary model or the self-framework has made a difference to a child or a family that you've worked with? Um, the one that stands out because I was recently asked to um, come to a friend of mine, his class, because he was teaching about journalism and um, mental illness. And I went to the class and he sent me an article that he had had published from a patient of ours many years ago. This was a 14-year-old child. And prior to this, and this is prior to us really understanding the trauma knowledge, uh, prior to her coming into our psychiatric unit, there had been three adolescent suicides in the town. This was a small town. And we were the community-based provider of psychiatric services. And the school um, was under a great, uh, great tension because these three kids had all been teenagers in the school. 
And it was too late, obviously, to do anything for them. But the school, local schools had become much more aware of the issue of adolescent suicide. So um, a teacher picked up from this, the child I'm talking about, picked up um, from her poetry and from the essay she had written that there was suicidal thoughts that they were worried about. And they sent her to us. Um, we admitted her and um, then started working with her and her family. And we found out that the, there was great tension. There was a lot going on between her mom and dad. And this child was a kid with a lot of integrity, very bright, um, but who wanted to kill herself. Uh, because And really, she was in the Sturm und Drang of 14-year-old emotions. Um, and she was overwhelmed by the secrecy um, of what was going on between her parents. So we were worked with her individually and worked with the family and her uh, to try to help her parents. We're very willing to collaborate. <clears throat> but one of my teaching lessons from her case was the importance of, in adolescence, of kids being at a point where they can make moral decisions. And I challenged her. Um, we talked about death and suicidality and what that meant and the impact it was having on her family and um, whether she was going to uh, be part of the problem or part of the solution. And I told her to um, think about it. She had the, the weekend to think about it. And I'd meet with her again on Monday. And she worked with the staff. And over the weekend on Monday, she I came in and she said, I've made a decision. I'm not going to, I'm not going to think about that anymore. I'm not going to act on it. I'm I'm going to commit myself to life. And she did. And that kid, <laughs> no longer a kid, that's a long time ago. Um, but what she did was she wrote an article for her school about um, her experience with treatment. And uh, then I gave it to this journalist way back um, when he was still a young journalist. And he had it pub the article published, with her permission, of course. Um, and when, I, when you asked me that question, that was who first sprang to mind, is that the outcome of that could have been so different. If we didn't have a safe place for her to go, if her teachers hadn't understood that this was a child in distress and gotten her the attention um, that she needed, that outcome could have been quite different. And she's gone on to uh, explore the world and then settle down and get married and have children of her, her, her own and be a healthy person. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the best story I can think of uh, off the top of my head. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I like it because it wasn't just about supporting her. It was actually about challenging the way she was thinking about the world. And I think sometimes that's so vitally important, isn't it? About, um, Especially in, as teenagers. Yes. <laughs> when they're trying to figure out what in the world the world is about, and we're giving them all kinds of confusing messages. That's right. As yeah, adults. They respect you more for it sometimes, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> the long time. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'll jump to Kay uh, in a minute um, if she had any questions. But I wanted to ask you um, about some early warning signs for teachers. Um, Sandy, we often hear um, from a lot of teachers who are in schools where they don't necessarily feel very supported, where they have a sense that it's possibly not a great place to work in, in terms of what it's like in the staff room or what it, the kind of work that actually gets permitted to be done. What are some early warning signs for people to pick up on for, a, for an organization or a system that's under stress and really um, perhaps not functioning the way it should be? Right. Uh, the, your example of the, of the staff room is a really good one. Um, so 
what staff need are a lot. The only antidote that we have to the effects of trauma really is social support. So if you go into a staff room and there's a lot of hostility, a lot of tension, because we, we as humans pick that up instantaneously because those, those are signals of danger. So, uh, and, and chronic conflicts that are not resolved. There's no conflict management strategies that are routinely in place. All of that are indicators. If you're think, interviewing for a job, don't go there. Um, lack of training, lack of training in um, the impact of stress and trauma on the teachers and the kids and their families. Um, a uh, punitive environment. So an environment where the reaction to um, the breaking of rules or episodes of violence are, uh, is just to punish kids or adults. Um, the uh, authoritarian leadership principles. Um, authoritarianism is a disaster for human groups unless they are in acute crisis. In acute crisis, it's a, it's a good strategy. But after that, um, the only thing that really is going to be effective is um, democratic processes. And so if, if it's a strictly authoritarian system, don't work there. If there's a lot of secrecy, um, it's obvious that communication problems exist. If there's an escalating um, number, you always want to find out how many in violent incidents have there been. Um, how many times are kids um, pushed out of the classroom and um, punished for, um, you know, their problems? And has that been rising or decreases? Is it being addressed? How are behavior problems in the classroom addressed? What are, what are the expectations of teachers? Is there any support? If you're having a, a really difficult time with a child, what happens? Do you get support? Does the child get support? Um, are there people in the school who, who actually are called in when there's any kind of emergency, not just as cops, but as real helpers? Mm. Um, and then is there, is there attention being paid? So what you see in an environment that's becoming increasingly sick and organizations are alive. They are living, adaptive, complex systems. And so I, I think of them the way I think about, I'm a doctor, so the way I think about um, the human body, I think about organizational bodies. So signs that um, a system is becoming sick are the signs that I've been talking about. But also um, where everybody's reaction to a stressful situation is to try to make a new rule. <laughs> and the accumulation of rules is a very clear indicator that social norms are eroding. And what you need to pay attention to are the social norms, which means bringing people together, talking about we've got a rising level of incidents, what's going on with our group, what's going on collectively and not just seek out a new rule or a new person to punish. It doesn't work. It will never work. But that's what we do over and over again. And I've seen that happen in all kinds of organizations, but I've definitely seen that happen a lot in schools where, well, these kids are out of control, so we need more punishment. They need more consequences. It's always, it's always called consequences. Um, <laughs> And there are always consequences for everything that we do. The difficult part and the part where you really need collective intelligence is with children as a whole, with the school as a whole, and with individual kids, you want the consequences to be deliberately designed for that group or that child that's going to get you more of what you want that child to be. If you apply the same consequences to everybody, it's stupid. It makes no sense. It makes the system incredibly stupid. Um, because one child will be 
breaking a rule uh, because they're they're pushing the limits of authority to see how what they can get away with, how far, where is the where's the limit? Another child will be breaking the rule because it's a coping skill that they have to deal with terrible stuff that's going on at home. And if you consequence each those two kids in the same way, you've totally missed the point. You've totally missed the language. So the way we communicate one way is with words, but that's the least knowledgeable place that we communicate. We communicate a lot by what we do, by our behavior. And when you, when you have lost the ability to read what behavior means, you've mm. lost your way. And mm. unfortunately, that's the simpler thing to do. And human beings, when offered complex or simplistic approaches, we automatically go to the simplistic stuff. And it, that's, why th that's why our complex systems aren't working. It doesn't mm. work. Mm. Never will work. Um, for complex problems, you have to apply complex solutions. Yeah. Um, I, I think you've found the tagline that's going to bring us all together. No more policies and procedures. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> or at least no more stupid ones. <laughs> <laughs> I might just throw to Kay. Kay, did you have any questions for Sandy? Um. No, but I was just thinking along those lines when um, Sandy was talking about <laughs> when you're in a, you know, how you recognise um, a very stressed, not a great place to be environment. And the it just came to my mind when I was in a space like that in a school that was like that. And I remember standing in the staff room watching really unacceptable behaviour between colleagues and thinking, oh, they're doing it because they can, because it's That's allowed. Right. Right. And I remember thinking, oh, dear. And I felt really quite frightened because yep. I thought, if that happens to me, nobody's going to, nobody's going to stand up for me or look after me. So I physically didn't go into the staff room. Right, exactly. To avoid the fear that... Exactly. It's like, oh my goodness! And there's, there's like the kids. There's, there's nobody keeping me safe. Oh well, I'm not going to put myself in that situation. So consequently, I didn't say things when I should have, and I didn't, blah blah blah. And then it was just, it becomes like a vicious circle. But um, and then yes, you stupid rules and stupid. <laughs> you think oh, I can't suffer these fools very long at all. I'm sorry. So yes, it's um. Yeah, you're right. It's, yeah, pile on the punitive and scream it's not working. Yeah, I think it's really important that people who run organizations have to be able to identify a, their, when their system's getting sick. Just yes. like we have to identify the signs of a flu mm. or a cold or something worse, right? And we go in for checkups. Um, so it, you systems because they are living bodies can get well they can heal and recover but not when you ignore the symptoms nice. so that's what you're describing is yes. that the symptoms were just where that that the system had adapted to a really sick way of functioning yes and that's i mean that's that's what whole communities do and that's what whole societies do Mm. is we, we adapt to really sick, inhumane conditions and then wonder why are things so screwed up? Well, duh, <laughs> they're sick. They're ill. Is really, really dysfunctional. Mm. And it's time w that we really were willing to kind of stake our claim around what's health? Mm. What is health in an organization? What does a healthy organization function like? Mm. What is a healthy school? Let's get out there and say it. Those of us who have been in lots of systems, get us together. We'll have no trouble with that. But it's not talked about. We don't think about it. But we do when, when we as, as individual human beings are sick, we know how bad it feels to feel sick. And we know what it feels like to feel well. So we need to be doing that at an organizational level too. I'm just writing a chapter. Just before you called, I was working on a 
chapter for a, for a pediatric text about what is a healthy organization and comparing it to a healthy body. Yeah, I would, I'd love to hear about that because I, I was just going to play devil's advocate. I, I can almost hear some of the kind of educational leaders, here, you know, listening to this saying, well, that's very nice for you, Sandy, but, you know, we've got parents at our door. We've got, you know, disruptive students. We don't have an endless resource of money and uh, whatnot. And th that's often what we hear when we kind of suggest oh, yeah. Well, what is your thoughts about that? Like, what are these practices that make for a healthy organization? Um, the, it begins, what oh, I think what you're describing is a failure of imagination. Right? <laughs> so where it begins is with a vision of what could be possible if we were yeah. committed to it. And mm -hmm. then you want to mobilize collective action to achieve that, uh, achieve that goal. So what's happening here and really because of the aces study there are um, various local communities that are organizing um, around okay we've got we now know we have all of these problems what would it look like for our community to be healthy what what would the what would the outcomes be how would we know and then back into what would we need to have that happen? So if money is food to an organizational body, just like food is food, nutrition for us, right? So, but it isn't everything. You need more than food. So there's a lot of work any community, including a school community, can do about, about getting better nutrition, not just money but um, organizing the way money is spent, looking at where the funding that we have goes. How do we mobilize our families? How do we mobilize the children as resources for creating the healthy environment that we're all imagining? And it means then you have to include kids and parents in that imagining process. It can't just come from the people that work in the school have to be all of the stakeholders. And there are now large group methods to begin that process. Things like uh, World Cafe, right? That where um, you get large groups of people together to start that imaginative process. And then the values, creating a values base <clears throat> of rather than um, so much criticism and negativism, using thing, tools like appreciative inquiry um, to, to really make the process of disagreement um, uh, synthetic. So that the, that the point of conflict is to figure out how do we satisfy all those opposing forces and the best system that humans have come up with to do that thus far is democracy. It ain't perfect, it's messy, it's hard, and it's time consuming. But people, humans support what they've helped to create. So if you wanna create change, you have to get all of the stakeholders to talk to each other. After setting up some basic standards for how people have to be with each other, what conduct has to be like. I. I teach a lot, and so every class I do, online or in person, begins with the students deciding on what kind of safety environment they want to have, and all of them have to have a safety plan for their responsibility to manage emotions. So there are simple things that even in large groups you can do to begin the process of reclaiming the territory so that we can build collective skills and build collective intelligence which is really our only hope yeah. and it's the only way humans have survived in the past that's right yeah and, and you and you talk about that in your uh, books as well sandy and I, I remember one of the most powerful lessons for me kind of starting out in this sort of work was to think about uh, interacting with the professional that i'm on the phone on <laughs> just the way i would with the child um, along the same values, thinking about their sense of safety. And that was such an incredible kind of learning. And we get comments about that in our training all the time. 
good. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Sadie, I was wanting to hear from you about your thoughts about um, self-care and burnout. So we're just kind of, if we zoom back into the individual, um, this is a huge uh, issue. I think in human services in general, I'm sure it might be there as well, but definitely in teaching as well, it's to a point of crisis. Um, th there's a lot of complexities to the issue, um, but, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it about um, how we, you know, individuals can think about their own self-care and, and how it is that they can advocate in a way that's sort of sustainable for them to continue being in the profession? Yeah, we use a tool we call, um, we're calling now a wellness plan. And it's, um, it's a commitment that every individual makes to take care of themselves and try to achieve a better balance. As, and, and it's part of serving the organization that mm. you, we, as educators, as social service folks, as healthcare providers, we're the only tools we have. We have nothing else except our beingness. And so we have to keep that shiny. Mm. And, and it's really hard because we do emotional labor all the time. So we're picking up other people's emotions are contagious. They're designed that way. And um, so it's really hard to get dragged down when you are seeing, you know, dozens of really distressed people. So you have to do things to leave work at work, make a ritual transition on your way home where you cleanse yourself and do whatever works physically, psychologically, socially, morally, spiritually, politically, you know, break it down into those different categories and then commit yourself to doing those things to actually seeing it as part of your job responsibility is to, is to keep yourself healthy and balance your work life and your family life. There are, um, the, the technology has, has produced great problems for people. So some organizations are beginning to make rules, but good rules, uh, about um, prohibiting email responses. Uh, at, by certain times of the day and on weekends, you know, having rules about the use of technology because otherwise you drown in it. You know, when is work ever done? When, when can you put it away when there's still email uh, to answer, you know? So I think that's the way people can help themselves is to have internal rules. But the more that's supported by the organization, the easier it becomes for people to actually follow through on self-care. And the more you can share your self-care plan with your teammates so that when somebody sees you escalating, they can say, hey, why don't you go take a walk and I'll, I'll fill in for you right now. You know, those simple things of social support mean a great deal, as does a sense of humor. You know, being able to laugh and being able to celebrate our successes. So there's a lot we can do as individuals. There's even more we can do at an organizational level to really keep our, you know, keep our equipment shiny because <laughs> yeah. that, that's our emotional selves yeah. and our spiritual selves. Yeah. No, thank you for that. That was great. Um, so Kay and I, we, we do some work um, with some of our indigenous communities here. Um, and they, uh, in, you know, in terms of kind of trauma, they're often the ones who are really hard hit. There's issues that are kind of historical injustices. There's structural inequalities. I'm sure you have experienced that, that there. What were your thoughts about helping these children Sandy, I, I think people often feel overwhelmed, really dispirited, because it feels so overwhelming, I think, in so many ways. Uh, what, is, what would be your kind of ideas about that? Well, um, let me preface this by saying I am uh, going to, I have a lot of experience working with our African-American communities, less with our Native communities, but in June, I actually am spending a week with a, um, a child program that works with Native Canadian 
kids. Um, so I'm going to learn more myself. But what I would say just from my experience is that so much of the historical injustice is about an assault on people's identity um, and, and a long-term multi-generational assault on people as being okay, being healthy, normal, um, creative human beings. And it's, it erodes a sense of community identity. So what I think the, um, the knowledge we have now about trauma and adversity is that by its very nature, it is, these are normalizing conversations. It basically says, you're not sick, you're not bad, you've been injured. And in the case of historical injustice, not only have you been injured, but your, your ancestors have been injured. But despite that, you are a survivor. You, have, you manage within the constraints that presently exist to thrive. So you have to validate that normality with people to help change that negative identity. And I think that's the beginning part of the educational process around trauma and adversity. It normalizes these terrible things that people feel and often do um, and says, now I can understand this because of what you've been through. Now, can I help you in some way to find outlets that are more positive and more creative for that will even help you thrive even more because you've already survived. You're here, you're living. Um, and I think that, and then I think it's really a political analysis and validating a political analysis is really important. I would like to see when I first started working in residential treatment of kids I had this fantasy that we would help those children go from being sick and disabled, in quotes, hmm. to being political and social activists, that we would create an army of kids who understood um, what had happened to them, how they had survived it, and what they needed to do to help the rest of the population. And interestingly, I had an early experience in a high school that again, another high school, different high school that uh, was dealing with the plague of adolescent suicides. And I was part of a group of, of adults and kids who were brought together to be a task force around how are we going to address this. And the, interestingly, the, the, the counselor who picked the children um, teenagers uh, was a really, really wise guy. He was smart and um, well-informed and he understood the issues of trauma and adversity. The children that he chose to be a part of this, uh, to explain to the adults what was going on with kids, were all kids who had been in treatment. They had all been in substance abuse, particularly substance abuse facilities and they knew how to talk to adults. They had learned how to talk about their emotions. They were experienced kids. And I thought it was so fascinating the power that they had as young people then to be the translator to the rest of the adult community about what was going on. And that was my fantasy about um, the most disturbed kids is that, that, that if we if we handled this properly, they would actually turn into our greatest strength. Mm -hmm. So that, that fantasy has yet to be fulfilled, <laughs> but I still have it as a vision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sandy, thank you so much for being able to talk to us. We end all our interviews with a, a question we ask everybody. What are you currently curious about with your work? I'm... Um, currently curious about how we mobilize whole communities and profoundly curious about how I move my culture, which is really, um, really out of balance. Um, so th those are really big, you know, how does this knowledge that I know about, how can it fuel the resistance um, everywhere? So uh, that, that leaves me um, 
unfettered uh, exploration <laughs> of, <laughs> of what needs to happen. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Uh, now, Sandy, was there anything that you wanted to point our listeners to in terms of resources or information about how to get in touch with yourself? Yeah, the, um, I'm a faculty at Drexel University, the Dornsife School of Public Health. So you can always reach me through that. Um, and then I wanted to share um, an organization uh, local here who are, do really good uh, training, which is becoming online training. We're designing uh, a new organizational approach. They're called Lakeside Global Institute, and it, the website is lakesidelink.com. But specifically for educators, they run, um, operate three alternative schools for very emotionally disturbed kids. Um, and their principal and um, assistant principal have, have integrated Dr. Bruce Perry's work into a curriculum for school teachers that's called NeuroLogic. And it, it gives teachers um, really basic skills for um, what to do about helping kids to settle down and develop more regulatory skills so that the children can learn. And I think it's a great resource for the education system. And it's incorporated some of my work um, into it. Um, to help the teachers and the kids. So that's that's a recommendation that I can give that's really concrete and available that's, now. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. that's great. We'll put, put up the links to all of that and to links to all your work, Sandy. Um, I, I was just saying to you before the interview, I read a lot of your work um, in the early days of doing this sort of work when, you know, you're feeling like you're running out of steam and it really... I think for people thinking about going to positions of leadership, particularly in human services organizations, I think definitely reading your work and learning about the model, the sanctuary model um, is of great benefit, I think. So thank you for your work and everything you've done. Thank you for doing this this podcast. I really appreciate both of you. Um, and it's been a pleasure to be with you. And those are really intelligent questions. I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Sandy. Take care. Bye-bye. That was our interview with Dr. Sandra Bloom. To get access to the links and resources mentioned in the interview, please visit www.tipbs.com. If you are enjoying listening to our show, please rate and view us on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>